Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and this is a special edition of The Money Movement. I'm here today in London, England. I have a special guest, Matthew McDermott, the global head of digital assets from Goldman Sachs. We have the backdrop here of the city of London and uh, a wonderful venue for this conversation. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Nice to be here. Absolutely. So I want to start maybe just a little bit on a personal level yep. and hear a little bit about your own journey into digital assets. It's always fascinating to kind of hear how do people arrive at this space, this problem space, and maybe we'll just start with that at a high level. Yeah, no, of course. And uh, probably not similar to many of the other guests that you've had on your podcast. So I joined Goldman Sachs in 2005 from Morgan Stanley, where I was latterly kind of involved in the securitization, which I think is actually quite relevant to some of the things that we're working on now in the digital space, and basically kind of have run a variety of different businesses over the last kind of 15 years. But at the tail end of 2019, I was approached by the then head of strategy at the firm. And she said, look, you've been focused on the application of blockchain in the business that you run, which was cross-asset financing, as I was looking to see how we can improve the efficiencies. And, you know, it had become very evident to me at that point in time that, you know, the technology had been talked about five, six, seven years, but was really at this cusp of being enterprise ready. Mm -hmm. You could see that there was real value to be kind of, you know, kind of extracted from using the underlying technology. So, when she said, look, we're really keen to really build out this business, we'd love you to run it. You know, that was a great opportunity for me to really kind of, I guess, kind of build on what I'd kind of learned in terms of the blockchain application. And then on the kind of personal level, I'd been obviously a little bit kind of dabbling in the crypto kind of investment. So, you know, I did have kind of real interest in the space. And as a function of that, I was given the ability to, to build out the team with the support of kind of management within the firm and really kind of cover the cross-section of what we consider to be kind of digital assets at Goldman. So it's probably kind of, you know, it's not as deep as other people, but probably the last three years I've been, you know, quite heavily involved in this space. Yeah, well, I think we can explore some of that. I think one of the noteworthy things, obviously, is you know, digital assets kind of inherently implies, you know, technology-driven yeah. change in the way finance works. And I know uh, David Solomon likes to talk about Goldman's more of a technology company and how many software engineers there are. And, but in, in some ways, right, this shift towards digital assets really is representative of a deeper technology shift in the financial system. And Absolutely. so it sort of puts you in your role in a pretty interesting place at the intersection of technology and finance, probably more so than, than it has uh, existed in the past. Absolutely. And I think that's really an interesting kind of angle because I think we're still so nascent in the development of this marketplace. But as I kind of take a step back and I look at our business, there are kind of, I'd say, two kind of key aspects to it. There's the part of the business that's driven by our clients. And so we have a crypto side to the business, which you know naturally is trading, lending, content. But, but the other key part that's driven is this whole digitization of the life cycle. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, the team are increasingly spending more and more time on that. And kind of what does that actually mean? That means we're looking at kind of either digital debt issuances, tokenization mm -hmm. of real assets, thinking about how we can digitize kind of different aspects of the commodities markets, mm -hmm. you know, the same with derivatives. And there's just a huge bank of client interest across the market. And so as we kind of think about that business, you know, we've been mandated on a number of different projects. We've built up a pipeline in many different aspects of, of certainly the tokenization space. And so then it becomes a question of, you know, what is the best and most strategic way to build this out? Mm -hmm. And how can you kind of start to think about this 
really kind of, you know, kind of a kind of morphing into the marketplace of choice for our clients. And that's when you really start to think about digital currency as well. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the key part of the client business. The other part of the business is kind of thinking about how can the firm operate more efficiently? And so there we take an internal lens to the technology and see how we can transform different businesses. Um, for example, we, we do pretty much daily an intraday repo, a digitized intraday repo with JP Morgan. We can see kind of great application across securities, finance, repo, and, and many other markets. And so, so there's a lot of work that we're doing there and working with the different businesses across the firm. And again, digital cash is a key component of that because in its rawest form, you need digital cash to facilitate the issuance, the, the, the opposite leg of the right. repo, right. the corporate action, secondary trading. And so these are all kind of key parts of, you know, kind of our thought process and how we really want to progress those businesses. I would say the other thing as well that's been interesting, following a couple of the transactions that we publicized last year, the European Investment Bank's uh, digital debt issues, which we worked on with two other banks, and obviously EIB, plus the intraday repo, plus more. We just had this huge flood, as I said, of client interest and people want to experiment. And you've just seen the investment now across asset managers, insurers, pension funds, you know, the real cross-section of the market sovereigns. And that's hugely encouraging and really has just given us the confidence, you know, ourselves to build out, you know, our own capabilities in this space. But at the, at the heart of what a lot of them want is basically to see liquidity. Mm -hmm. You know, they would like to see, obviously, kind of be involved in the innovation, but then just see the ability to, where is that kind of next step, that liquidity, because that's where you, this becomes truly transformational right. and you increase the adoption. Right. I mean, I, I think it's so interesting, you know, I think people who've gotten into the digital asset space through crypto have kind of entered into this world where, you know, they only know this native digital asset world, meaning yeah. they only know a world where the cash and the money is a form of cryptographic money. Yes. They only yeah. know a exchange model where you have real-time settlement and you have, you know, the flexibility of, of cryptographic custody and, and, you know, you have marketplaces that exist on the internet where buyers and sellers are convening. Yeah. And I mean, so in some ways, like the, what I'll call the public blockchain, public digital asset space is sort of in some ways running out ahead, but what people are trading are not, you know, debt issuance from companies or other securities. And I think a lot of people who come at this from the, the public side, as it were, the public internet side and, and the crypto side, actually don't even understand the basics of what capital markets are. Although there are a lot of traditional finance people who are now in the crypto space, right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, more and more every day, yeah. right? But there's sort of, to many people, like the functioning of traditional markets is not well understood. But when you are close to it, as you've been for m most of your career, you kind of see the kind of fundamental, not just operational challenges, but even at, a, at the level of fundamental financial risk, right? If you're in a world of T plus three settlement Absolutely. or you're in a world where you have to tie up capital for meaningful periods of time and you don't actually have visibility into the, the counterparty in various parts of your transactions, there's like this inherent risk that exists that people live with, right? Yeah. And they figure out ways to kind of build around it. You know, it'd be interesting just in, in light of that, you know, just thinking about some of the traditional capital market functions, Goldman obviously plays an extraordinarily significant role in that. But maybe walk us through a digital asset debt issuance. What is that? Why is it better? What does that look like today? What does that look like three years from now? The relationship to digital currency, yeah. the actual 
markets, secondary markets, like what, you know, maybe break it down. Imagine, you know, if a company needs money, what do they do and how does digital assets and, help that be better? And look, I think that's, and, and I'll come on to that, but I think you just touched on some really good points. And, and, and I think, you know, what's driving kind of our enthusiasm in this space, as well as, you know, the many different clients that we talk to. And I think it is the points that you raised that, that reduction in risk, that increased functionality. And kind of what do you mean by the increased functionality, the ability, the programmability of the technology, mm-hmm. this finality of settlement. So to your point, I mean, the, the EIB transaction, I'll go into it in a bit more detail, but traditionally they are T plus five when they settle. Mm-hmm. We did T plus one by design, but the actual settlement process itself was right. in, inside an hour. So you can just see how the, the, you're kind of reducing the risk. What does that mean? It means you can be more precise with your liquidity, right? which re- reduces your capital needs you know, right. in the future. Right. But these benefits will only really truly be kind of seen once you've got full adoption. Yeah. But coming back to your question, what does it mean to issue debt and raise cash? So so if it does take company X, they're looking to raise money in the digital world, they've kind of have two options, I would say. So there's one where they could issue debt in the traditional form, so in the form of a certificate. Mm-hmm. You then basically kind of have that segregated in an account and you tokenize it. Right. And that is tokenized onto either a private DLT or a public blockchain, permission blockchain. Or as we did with the European Investment Bank, we actually do a digitally native issuance direct to Ethereum in, in that example, mm-hmm. and that was an ERC-20 token. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you kind of then kind of raise the cash? So in the kind of example of doing either, you then have two options. You can create a stable coin, mm-hmm. or you can think about working with central banks like we did in the example of EIB, whereby in both scenarios today, because the latter is more of a proof of concept, to be fair, you would place cash on deposit, and then you would basically mint, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a basically a token which represents euros or mm-hmm. dollars, and then you have this kind of DVP settlement that's kind of, as I said, is kind DVP of DVP for the uninitiated. It's basically just kind of delivery versus payment, right? So, in the, going back to your example of you know T plus three, you mm-hmm. know, often you kind of have this kind of protracted settlement process. Delivery versus payment is pretty much kind of. In this example, within 60 minutes, and right. so it's kind of you could say oh, the way that they, they term it in the in the market is instantaneous, is atomic settlement. Right. And so then, then basically the issuer in this example, company X, then takes title to the token, and then they can either use that, you know, if you think there's a broadening marketplace, you know, on the blockchain to use that to buy other assets, right. or can then convert it into fiat in today's world for their normal kind of trading activities or yeah. treasury services. So I think like part of the key here is. This concept of taking title to the debt itself, right? So, again, for a lot of people, the a debt contract, they don't really know what that means. There's, but there is this paper contract, right? It's like the, exactly. the rules yeah. of the security. Here's what you get. Here's yeah. how we're going to pay you back. Here's what happens if we screw yeah. up. You know, here's what recourse looks like. All the you yeah. know nitty gritty. But then representing that as something that then people can swap and trade and absolutely and, and price and using market in information, decide it's worth this versus that, all that good stuff. And that kind of taking title, I think in public blockchain world, right, if I you know, want to purchase essentially a, a compound dollar token, what I'm essentially doing is I'm, I'm buying effectively a, something that is like a form of debt, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm buying that. And, and you know, there's kind of continuous settlement behind the scenes and the cash is USDC and it yeah. sort of kind of comes in and out. And I think the, the interesting question around things like corporate debt is at what point does the token itself not just be 
a record of a security that's there, but actually the smart contract itself is what funds flow into and funds come Absolutely. out of. And the actual funding mechanism goes through a smart contract. The funds go to the issuer. The coupon payments come back through the smart contract and get paid out to anyone who happens to hold that token. How far do you think we are for something like that in a, you know, a, a classic you know, debt I think, security? I think we're getting closer. And I think we'll actually see a huge amount of advancement this year. I mean, using the EIB example, you know, that settlement was obviously kind of executed through a smart contract. The debt instrument itself is zero coupon. I see. And so, but, you know, one of the key areas of focus for us this year is to kind of start to see, you know, kind of corporate actions play out on chain, mm. uh, post the issuance of the transaction, secondary trading. Now, where is that? I mean, there's kind of, I say, two key components. I think one is actually kind of having the kind of digital currency on chain yeah. that's ubiquitous and can be used for the entirety of the transaction. Yep. Sounds simple, but obviously, yeah. you know, there are obviously a lot of considerations there, not least regulatory. And then the second piece is the secondary trading. So depending on the venue, you know, be it public permissioned or private DLT, you know, there are, there are considerations there. And so with, I guess, you know, this kind of move uh, by various different kind of regulatory bodies to kind of obviously put out proposed regulations mm -hmm. and the ability to use sandbox, I just think we're going to see a lot greater kind of innovation, you know, over the next kind of 12 months. Just to give you an example, with the markets and crypto assets within Europe, mm -hmm. we and any other institution would have the ability to basically file for an application to do all of those things I just said. Yeah. Basically do a digital debt issuance, list it, and then basically either, yeah. you know, have an MTF on either third party or create your own and then facilitate secondary trading on chain. Yeah. And these are kind of, I think, really key developments because that allows clients to see this marketplace really is evolving. Mm -hmm. The tools are there. It's, I think, the regulations now, yeah. you know, need to kind of, I guess, kind of evolve with yeah. that. I'd be interested in your, in your perspective on, um, I want to come back to regulation, yeah. but uh, I'm interested in your perspective on, there's been this incredible amount of basically like, open source innovation, intellectual property being kind of created out in the public, like blockchain technology itself is that you've got big developer communities that are building up around this. Yep. And you have this kind of gradual buildup, everything from crypto wallets to custodial infrastructure to the actual execution settlement. And, you know, all, all this yep. stuff is sort of be, being built up. And, you know, as I think about it, you know, historically, financial market infrastructure was something that both from a regulator's point of view and from the kind of private sector actors that were in it, where they felt like it had to be like super private, proprietary, tightly controlled technology. And my background before getting into this was digital media. So I'm now in digital <laughs> money, I was in digital media, but it was the same kind of thing, right? You know, you think about like, uh, you know, satellite television or cable television or terrestrial television, because I was an online video guy, but, yeah. but basically yeah. like, yeah, they ran all their own infrastructure. They put physical wires into homes. They had their own proprietary set-top boxes. You know, they everything, you know, put birds in the sky in the case of, of, you know, satellite. Huge infrastructure. And the whole concept was, we have to do this. That's how we reach the customer. Yeah. And it's also kind of our proprietary technical advantage. It's how we ensure quality of service. It's, you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And in some ways, it seems like the financial system is is going through a similar evolution. We have Netflix and YouTube, and and now even you know HBO. I watch it through HBO Max, just yeah. on any smart TV, and it's just all open internet infrastructure. It's based on open source protocols. Yeah. It's. Do you think that's the kind of change we're in for here? And and when you think about the kind of technology stack that 
whether it be Goldman or other traditional capital markets players are looking at, are you looking at this from the lens of, hey, look at all this open innovation that's happening? And that's kind of the the kind of crowdsource IP development is essentially what it is. Famously, uh, things like Linux, which is the most yeah. widely used operating system in the world. People don't even know it. But do you, do you see that as kind of what's happening? And is that a, does that lead to a better, safer infrastructure? Because I think part of this is about the safety and soundness of and the resilience Absolutely. of the infrastructure and kind of this, maybe it's a myth that tightly controlled, privately run is is safer than something that's actually just out in the public and based on open source. Look, I think, yes, I think we see a, a huge amount of kind of opportunity and excitement in where this can go. You know, in the context, you know, kind of, of, of the Netflix analogy, I think, you know, when you think about the potential of DeFi, I mm-hmm. mean, from our own perspective, just looking at kind of, you know, is it an existential threat opportunity? We're definitely in the latter camp. And I think for us, it's kind of really just understanding kind of how that can have a positive impact on the way we do business. Mm-hmm. And and so we're spending a lot of time, you know, kind of researching and, and thinking about development both internally, but also exploring externally what the options are now. Clearly, the regulations kind of, you know, kind of really need to allow us to be able to think about how we can develop. But in terms of like a regulated DeFi platform, I think that's mm-hmm. exceptionally powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think once you actually look at the potential of what that could do in terms of you know, various different protocols, be it lending protocols for our clients, yeah. that just becomes so powerful. And I think the technology, and you've touched on this you know, earlier, when you think about kind of a digital wallet, you start to think about the kind of KYC, the AML, the identity. Yeah. These are all key things that really need to be developed. Yeah. So kind of that regulatory grade kind of I yeah. guess accreditation, for want of a better word, right. that gets people comfortable. But I think once the, the regulators really do kind of understand and see the potential, yeah. and that to your point, actually, maybe this is a better way to yeah. manage the system. You know, time will tell. But yeah, I, I think we're very excited about the potential. Yeah, I remember you know, back when internet email was banned in companies because it was like, well, we don't control that. It's like the public internet. Like, what, you know, that <laughs> we can't yeah. do that. And And obviously, eventually, companies were like, Oh, actually, we could put our our own core systems could be exposed to the internet, and actually, yeah. that allows us to do you know continuous twenty four seven business with people yeah. and and these kinds of things. So, a related question on, on this is the nature of of actual capital market liquidity and secondary market liquidity. Yeah. And there's sort of a, a question that we've always or I've thought about, which is do kind of public digital asset markets. So, just just say you know a Coinbase exchange or a FTX exchange, just yep. giving a couple of, of examples, yep. do public markets for digital assets eventually become the same public markets where tokenized securities and digital asset securities are traded? And it was in the news this week that the I, I think the aggregated revenue of crypto exchanges was something like 60 or 70% larger than the aggregated revenue of stock exchanges yeah. in last year, yeah. which is pretty startling. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of margin to go after there, but <laughs> when you look at the spreads. But in any case, but is it, it's not just about revenue. It's sort of like a lot of our customers, for example, are electronic markets firms, right? They're, yeah. they're the same guys and gals that are trading in private traditional securities markets, public markets, et yeah. cetera. Does that converge in your view over time? Do the digital asset markets of today you know, become the public markets of tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, this is my personal view. I think 
yes, I think there's a very strong, you know, kind of reason why that will happen. But I do feel that the reg going back to the regulation right. point, and yeah, I, yeah. I know I pivot back to it all there. the time, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. but that I think is going to be a key thing. And I think what's really interesting, you know, you see kind of Coinbase, you see Sam FTX, yeah, they're all very pro regulation, yeah, and they yeah. they welcome it. And, and Sam's and, launching stocks too, exactly, yeah. right? So and as a very heavily regulated firm, naturally we do, and we kind of there's a kind of creates a level playing field, you know, that's appropriately yeah. regulated. I think that's kind of the way it'll go. But yes, I, I I do, and I think the nature of the market changes. It's a twenty four seven market. Yeah. I mean, we, we dipped our toes in just recently with our first secured lending trade mm. um, into the kind of crypto ecosystem. Mm. That was a big, a big thing. You know, you're suddenly now risk managing something 24-7, seven days yeah. a week, you know, and so. Yeah, it's a, a fascinating that way. Like, I don't think people entirely appreciate it. You know, we have this yield product, Circle Yield, and it's like secured lending, right? We're based, the, uh, the counterparties are borrowing USDC. Yeah. And they're posting Bitcoin as collateral. Yeah. And. In a traditional securities lending environment, like, okay, you're posting, say, stock as collateral. Yeah, yeah. But, like, when you got a margin call, like, it takes a while. <laughs> it's like, it takes a while. But when, when we have to execute a margin call, it takes about, you know, 10 minutes, uh, so to speak, because it's just the block and confirmation. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, yeah. I, can, I can do these collateral operations basically in real time, near real time. Yeah. And if it's something like, you know, your, if your collateral's something on a faster, you know, a faster digital asset yeah. or whatever, then that's pretty wild. And I, I don't think traditional market participants quite grasp the And I think that's really that. powerful because I guess there's, there's two examples there as well. Like, so we talk about the intraday repo. Yeah. Again, one of the reasons we like that, and I think the market will transform you know, quite quickly actually as we start to see more adoption, the ability to be so precise in terms of when you need that money mm-hmm. and the ability to be able to tokenize an asset and have the confidence of, you know, finality of settlement, mm-hmm. so powerful. And mm-hmm. so you can just be a lot more kind of interactive during the day in terms of your sources and deployment of liquidity. Mm-hmm. Plus you change the whole risk dynamic because you're actually okay collateralizing it because mm-hmm. you just, you have that confidence in, in the settlement finality, as I said. And then the other point I was, I was going to make, just remind myself what it was, but um, it'll come to me in a second, Carl. Yeah. Crypto collateral. Oh, that was it, yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that was, that was the other point, sorry. So one of the projects we're actually looking at is digitizing derivatives on chain. Mm-hmm. And actually, kind of when you think about that market, you know, actually having that ability to have almost real-time MPV mm-hmm. suddenly transforms, you know, the kind of risk profile of a derivative because you reduce your credit and your market risk. Right. And then if you can apply a smart contract to, to basically be the provider of collateral for VM or IMSEG, you know, that can be done periodically during the day. And again, that, again, reduces the risk. And that will have a profound impact. And that could be cash, yeah. you know, or it could be kind of tokenized assets, yeah. for yeah. example. So the point I think you're making, I think, is, yeah, is, is spot on. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the sort of second dimension of this that, that, that we've thought about a bit is if, you know, kind of these public digital asset markets start to b- become markets where people can trade, not just, you know, sort of protocol tokens or, yeah. or things like that, but where people can actually trade Tokenized, various forms of tokenized financial contracts, whatever yeah. those would be, you know, it, it kind of opens up this idea that capital markets themselves could, in theory, service a f- much larger array of businesses. Absolutely. Right? You know, there's, there's never really been robust secondary markets, certainly for private companies and private company securities, right? There have been attempts to do it. It's been I really think, hard. Yeah. But it, it seems like in a world of digital assets, like you actually could, you could create models where even for things that have 
much less liquidity and demand on them where you could still find efficient markets. Like I call it long tail capital markets. Yeah. But I think that's exactly right. When you talk about tokenizing real assets, you know, for, for me, mm-hmm. the, the kind of the key drivers are pretty much threefold transparency, mm-hmm. you know, that, that ability to just more seamlessly disseminate information. Yeah. Liquidity. Again, you know, once you've got a, yeah. a reasonable amount of adoption. And that's kind of quite important because I think, because then you think about the fractionalization, you open it up to just a new universe of yes. investors. And for private assets, you know, real estate, you know, private equity, you yeah. know, a lot of people just don't have access. Yeah. And so what oh. you're doing is you're empowering the right. consumer. The, the, right. And so you're just opening that universe. Yeah. And over time, you can see how that will lead to, yeah. you know, kind of the appropriate retail investors also being able to invest in certain assets because and having access to it and then they yeah. can determine what their investment portfolio should look like yeah. so yeah i'm we're very kind of well, i'm certainly very positive about you know the, yeah. the, the forward direction of that yeah it's interesting to think about you know the the internet has these multi-sided marketplaces create ways to very very efficiently serve even the most niche thing right yeah. you know i can I might be a sole proprietor and I'm able to do advertising that's highly targeted that reaches exactly who I want for my product. Or if I make a widget, I can go on Alibaba or Amazon and yeah. I can get my product in global distribution. Like it's phenomenal and in you know transportation and all these other areas. And capital markets have resisted that. And I think people who participate in digital asset markets intuitively experience that democratization. Absolutely. Um, and they're like, this is incredible, right? Yeah. So obviously there's like investor protection and disclosure and all the things that are important in, in financial markets, right? So that, that's key coming back to regulatory as well. But it, you know, it seems like the, even like the disclosure regimes might have to change in a world of digital assets. It would be adapted to... Because I think that. that's a really good point as well. Because, I mean, one of the things, you know, I would naturally welcome is a harmonization of the regulations yeah. across, you know, yeah. the globe. I mean, sad, I, I doubt that yeah. will happen. Um, <laughs> but that will be very powerful. Because, I mean, the technology, to your point, is completely ubiquitous, you know, and just transcends yeah. borders and what have you. So, so I think, yeah, there will be kind of nuances of the different jurisdictions. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think it will give... Yeah. A most broader universe of yeah. opportunity. So, a related question, which you don't need to answer on behalf of Goldman Sachs, but I'll, I'll raise it because it's related. Which yeah. is, you know, for investment banking, you know, is is obviously you know providing this, you know, helping companies to raise capital yep. and find buyers, and you know, the kind of marketing and sale of of that. And in a, in a world where you know investment banks have historically had to do that, the business had to be big enough that it could find a market in, you know, a, a meaningful market, yeah. right? So, yeah, I remember in the 1990s, you could go public with, you know, 20 million in revenue as a software company. That was kind of like where yeah. it was. But then it got to a point where you really needed to be more like 100 million in revenue yeah. or obviously markets move around. But, you know, is, is there a world where there's like a new class of investment banking that services these long tail capital markets, or does that look different uh, in your mind? Again, don't. Yeah, this not is, this is not, yeah, Goldman's. I mean, this yeah. is my view. I think, I think the technology allows you to scale and mm-hmm. actually to service. Yeah, you know, a much broader universe. Right. of companies, I guess, in this example. So, yeah, I think that that is you know a distinct possibility. I've also seen some very interesting developments in around this space. In, in the DAO space as well, which Absolutely. I think, you know, I kind of blow your mind, actually. Absolutely. So, so when you start thinking about this, but I think it, it will be imperative to yeah. be able to really kind of, I think, yeah. you know, broaden and, you know, just taking an asset manager, Blackstone, I mean, you just look how successful they've been mm-hmm. in the kind of traditional way in attracting kind of mm-hmm. retail and a broader universe of 
of investors. I think that's very applicable here. You have smaller companies, and I think that scalability just means that they'll yeah. have a much broader universe yeah. of, of advice and yeah, totally. access. I've, I've done some episodes on DAOs. We don't have to go there no. in a deep way, but the kind of comes back to the fundamentals of some of this, which is in a world where a corporate form can exist on-chain, where you know the capital formation is on-chain, where the treasury of the organization is on-chain, where the governance is on-chain, yeah. where the that token that is issued, equity-like, whatever it is, yeah. exists globally, and where you know smart contracts intermediate you know, actual commercial relationships, labor relationships, all that. Like you could start to imagine digitally native corporate forms and a level of transparency and auditability on financials that you could actually effectively have various sort of automated forms of underwriting that take place on these where you're getting market signals and pricing on even a small entity, you know, and capital formation becomes possible and things like that as well. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. But we're probably we're a few years away. <laughs> I'd say, well, yeah, but it happens really fast yeah. too. So some of this stuff is very, very surprising. Yeah, maybe switching gears a little bit because you've touched on it in a few places, which is yeah. sort of digital cash, yeah. digital currency. Yeah. Uh, there's lots to talk about. This happens to be my core business. Naturally, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, again, just from your perspective, what do you see the world looking like? You know, a few years from now, private sector-led initiatives. Public chain stable coins, permissioned stable coins, central bank digital currency, the interplay of these, everyone's sort of trying to understand this. Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's quite a broad topic. And I, and I think digital currency, you know, going back to what I said earlier, is kind of imperative for the growth and the broader adoption. And I think, you know, from our perspective, there are probably kind of three or four key alternatives, but really only two that I kind of see kind of with the, with the medium to longer term kind of. I guess opportunities. So yeah, kind of have obviously the stable coins and even stable coins come in many different flavors. Mm-hmm. You have the, the kind of the deposit backed stable coin. You have then the kind of the, the kind of the USDC where you've kind of got, you know, kind of say government bonds, cash, which are more yeah. cash, cash equivalent like. Yeah. And then you have the, the more exotic, which kind of have a broader kind of reserve profile, um, somewhere algorithmic. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's kind of a real interesting blend there. I naturally on the, the kind of medium term, I think you'll probably gravitate to. To the narrow reserve, I think, is where the regulators will ultimately go. You've then got central bank digital currencies. And mm-hmm. clearly, there's a lot to talk about and consider there. Geopolitics, you know, kind of what does it mean for the financial system? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of concern, naturally, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of disintermediation of financial intermediaries. But at the heart, I do think central bank digital currencies will have a part to play. I do think that they're much further down the line just because there's just so much for them to consider be it monetary policy, you know, how much do they ultimately want to issue and potentially impact mm-hmm. just the, the equilibrium you see now in the financial system. And then there are kind of synthetic CBDCs, which I think are very interesting. They're kind of a little bit like private stable coins, but just where the reserve sits at the central bank. Right. I think they, they potentially could be very powerful as well. And then there's kind of like the trigger solution, which is something we did in a simulation with the Bundesbank, whereby you kind of, you transact DVP, mm-hmm. delivery versus payment on chain, but there's like a trigger to the kind of the RTGS system, yeah. uh, which then basically facilitates kind of the atomic settlement. But, you know, where do I see this space kind of in the medium term? I think basically the private sector will lead. I think stable coins are really going to lead the growth and adoption of digital currency. We have to um, agree. Yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, I just think the nimbleness, you know, and yeah. obviously, yeah. So, so I generally feel that that's going to really lead the adoption over the next kind of one, two, three years. Yeah. 
And then I think we'll just watch and see how this, the central bank digital currencies evolve. I mean, there's, I think the stats, there's 87%. Everyone's looking. Yeah, 87% of central banks are looking at this. That's over 90% of the world's GDP. But I think the two will coexist yeah. quite comfortably. Yeah. I like to say, um, at one point I met with the, uh, the CIO, Chief Information Officer of the Federal Reserve at an event. And I asked him, I said, what's the tech stack of the dollar? Like, what is the dollar? Yeah. Like, what is it? Like, I'm a tech guy. I want to know what it is. And he said, it's an Oracle database. You know, <laughs> it's a cluster of Oracle databases yeah, yeah. running on Sun Microsystems, you know, uh, computers. And it's like, okay, that's actually what the dollar is. It's like, yeah. it's a SQL database. And, you know, when you, when you think about whatever quantitative easing, quantitative easing, I mean, it's a SQL insert statement into that database. And then those records go to a bank and I'm going to buy those mortgage-backed securities from these newly created records in my database. And now you have records in your reserve account and that's what it is. Yeah. Like, literally, that's what it is. And, and I think yeah. people, you know, don't grok that. And so oftentimes when asked about C- CBCs, one of my answers is actually, yeah, the actual, the core architecture of central bank money should be upgraded from Oracle databases. Like you that's can so- imagine like cryptographic money, distributed ledger technology as a huge improvement in the core architecture from an interbank perspective, from a kind of efficiency perspective, from a security perspective, like all these, it's like, it's, it's, it's almost obvious that that should be what's upgraded. But just like, you know, I, as an individual who's doing a credit card transaction, I'm not clearing that through that, that Oracle database, you know, (laughs) like there's many, many layers between me and that. And that's probably a good thing for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I think, you know, when I think about digital currency, I think of it sort of similarly. And that coexistence is really important because that coexistence is part of the way in which the financial system has allowed for innovation Absolutely. in the private sector. And, and so basically, it's a long-winded say, a way of saying, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> and the other point I'd make as well with, with kind of digital currency is the cost reduction. Yeah. You know, I mean, it obviously varies jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but, you know, some of the costs for transferring money, yeah, you know, are significant. And yeah. That will dramatically reduce and the speed of cross-border payments and settlement. I think that's going to be hugely powerful for that. Yeah, tremendous. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think intuitively people who've experienced, you know, just the internet and what it's done for, I can do a video call with anyone anywhere for free, or I can do all these things. And like, but with money, it's somehow, it plays by a different set of rules. And like, that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It should just work the same way, right? And so we're, getting closer um, on that. And that'll have a profound impact on, you know, a lot of banks' business models, going back to one of your earlier questions. Yeah, Yeah, for sure, for sure. We could go long on that topic. One last sort of high-level question, which is about coming back to where we started in the conversation a little bit and Mm -hmm. and you taking on this role as global head of digital assets at Goldman Sachs. I remember when that was announced, the CNBC story, and it's like a big deal, right? And, And everyone's like, oh my God, Goldman's doing this. And I'm interested to hear, you know, for a long time, there was a, just a huge amount of skepticism. And I think uh, people within bulge bracket banks who are getting involved in this were kind of like, yeah, you're over here, you're a science project. Not really sure if there's going to be any, anything from that. But now, yeah. all of a sudden, it seems more front and center. And, and while you know, these are still you know, you know, early examples, like the attention's on this. Absolutely. And so I'm, I'm curious if you're finding, and again, you don't need to speak on behalf of Goldman Sachs <laughs> here, but if you're, if you're finding and you're seeing, not just in Goldman, because you deal with a lot of other counterparties, firms, others, you know, 
do people want to work in this? Is this like attracting talent oh. like internally? And again, not getting into anything proprietary, but like, is this, ha, have you seen that kind of sea change a little bit in terms of the energy of, of talent? A hundred percent. I mean, I, you know, you just need to look at, you know, some of the kind of crypto yeah. native organizations and the amount of talent that they've hired from, yeah. you know, kind of institutions, you know, like ours. And people, yeah, are energized. I mean, they see kind of a huge potential, you know, kind of in, in on the forward with digital assets. And, you know, it comes back to what is digital assets. And, yeah. you know, we've given a bit of an overview. But I kind of, you know, from a firm perspective, I would say kind of every other kind of client discussion, you know, a lot of people are having is on digital assets. Mm-hmm. Senior people across the different institutions really want to understand how can this kind of positively impact their business on yeah. the forward. And so this energizes, you know, senior management and, you know, people naturally are very eager to to watch and, and see how the space develops and be involved. You know, as I've, I have mentioned actually at the beginning, but I mean, even just my own team, when I took on the job, you know, beginning of 2020, we've grown kind of tenfold. Wow. And I think, you know, that, you know, not, it's not as big as, you know, something like Coinbase, for example, yeah. but, but it just highlights, you know, where we see commercial opportunity in this space. And we're looking, as I say, at the digitization, you know, of kind of traditional assets. You then look at the crypto side of the business, how we can apply it internally. Yeah thinking kind of, you know, we, we obviously kind of make strategic investments in this space. Yep. And then coming to your point around, you know, the regulated DeFi places, just seeing and looking and how, how that can impact us on the forward. So there's just a huge bank of work that we're doing in this space. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, very excited to see what emerges and thank you. Uh, really appreciate the conversation today, Matthew. Likewise, thank you very much for having me, Jeremy. Cheers. Bye.